Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 20 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a childlike giddiness filled show lined up for you today. We have hit episode 20. Woo! Uh, traditionally a 20th wedding anniversary is denoted with China. You get China gifts on your 20th wedding anniversary or you know, I mean, at least if you have family members and friends who are aware of it. Um, it's precious and delicate is China. A bit like my own mailbag has been this week. I plan on answering a couple of messages that I've been sent since last week's episode of Hypnosis Weekly later on in today's show. I have had man flu this week. Um, I've tended to keep it to myself and only really mentioned it to close friends, family, everyone on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+, on my blogs, during a webinar, and now on this podcast this week. That's all. Um, I prefer to keep things like this low-key. I've had the man flu. It was a close call, uh, but I managed to avoid going to A&E at the hospital. My throat was incredibly sore. My nose behaved like a snot factory non-stop for days. My head pounded and it made me miserable at times. If I sound a tad nasally this week, you know why. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with a hypnotherapist, a founder of People Building and NLP for Kids, Gemma Bailey. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media and also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Gemma Bailey this week. I shall be exploring her extensive work with children. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. Now, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of an embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and stance, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosis weekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. First of all today is this week's interview. I'm delighted to be welcoming Gemma Bailey. Gemma is someone I was really excited about having on the show. She's a successful businesswoman with drive and entrepreneurial flair, something that's absent with a lot of hypnotherapy professionals I have found. 
She applies this and related fields, uh, you know, th th this field of hypnosis and other related fields to helping children. And she's developed a brilliant niche for herself as a result. Most importantly for me though, she is a sister. That is, she has the same color hair as me. I liked her before we started as a result. Get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea and enjoy this week's interview. Okay, so as I've been discussing, I am delighted to have with me today uh, the one and only Gemma Bailey. Uh, Gemma, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So first up, tell us a little bit about, about your background. You know, how did you get into this, this field and these related fields and how have you arrived at where you are now? Um, I suppose it's really been about bringing together a lot of different things that have uh, cropped up throughout my life. So I started out in my working career as a nursery nurse um, and I thought that I'd reached a point of leaving that field behind me. Um, but as some of you will know, and, and I'm sure we'll mention later, actually, it's now quite pivotal in, in terms of the work that I'm doing. Um, it was whilst I was off sick from my nursery manager's job that I saw Paul McKenna on TV doing some of his new NLP stuff mm. um, as opposed to the funky stage show stuff I'd been watching through the 80s uh, and I thought it looked really interesting and intriguing um, we just had the internet installed in our home at that point in time which gives you some idea of how long ago it was yeah and you're winding up your computer from the back and it was made of wood Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're on the right page. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I sat there for sort of, you know, 10 minutes waiting for a page to load um, in order to do some research into this NLP and also then starting to dabble with the world of hypnotherapy as well. And I found a course which offered both, which was very appealing to me. And I decided to go and do the training at that time for my own personal development. Um, and I thought that it, it was something that I was just going to apply to myself and use for myself and, you know, maybe develop a bit of a, a hobby and an interest in. Um, and actually what happened once I'd completed the training was everyone else became fascinated with it and wanted to have some sessions or to try things out or to see if they could overcome their phobias. And I ended up seeing clients in the evenings when I'd finished work. Now, to cut a very long story short, it took quite a long time for me to transition from uh, working in a, what I would term as a normal job, um, and doing my therapeutic stuff in the evenings to full time doing therapeutic stuff. Uh, but it did happen eventually. And a little bit further down the line, um, having met with another NLP trainer, um, the idea cropped up around us applying the skills that we had specifically to children. Yeah. So now as well as doing all of the you know training and therapeutic side of things, I've also got NLP for kids where we specialize in using those skills with children. Yeah, yeah, and and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna lose some of that stuff. I, I'm really excited about that. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, um, I cannot imagine that they would ever. I mean, currently, that they would ever sit down for longer than three seconds. However, <laughs> I cannot wait to be able to to get them into some of this stuff and even use some of it. Um, um, so this is really interesting, and we're going to explore some of that later on. Um, 
Um, so if I just kind of shuffle you in the direction of, of hypnosis then, mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit, you know, um, um, where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned? How, how do you define hypnosis? You know, if you get stuck in the, the, the corner of the kitchen at a party and someone's asking you about it, how do you explain it? And how do you explain it to clients or perhaps people new to the field? And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you arrived at that definition too. Um, well, for me, I think the best definition that I've come across with hypnosis, actually I found in a Darren Brown book of all places, um, and he described hypnosis as a special state. Mm. And that was the one that for me stuck because I've heard other people talking about it being a, you know, a, a, a different, an adjustment in your consciousness. I've heard about people talking about it as being somewhere in between awake and asleep. I've heard lots of different ways of explaining what hypnosis is. But in my experience of having worked with clients on a one-to-one -one basis, um, it's varied so drastically from one to the next. Yes. So I was finding that some clients would say that they felt very light during hypnosis. Some would say they felt very heavy. Um, some would say that they forgot they had a body. Um, so they reporting all these different things some of them were saying they felt it was like sleep some said it was nothing like sleep so it was really tricky to try and find a one-size-fits-all definition so what I try to explain to people now is it's something special and it's a state typically not like anything else you experience although it's very similar to some of the other things we experience like daydreaming or like being in a light doze but it doesn't necessarily feel that way for everybody and we all tend to have our own unique experience of what it's like um, and I'll be honest with you Adam sometimes I might be working with a client and they could be fidgety and itchy and you know wiggling about all over the place mm. and barely able to concentrate enough to keep their eyes closed and in the back of my mind I might be thinking this is not working for them I know what the conversation is going to be when we get to the end of this session but I'm going to persevere anyway and I'm kind of expecting the worst that they're going to say yeah you know it was okay it didn't quite hit the spot and then at the end I say how did you find the session today? And they might say something like, oh my God, it was awesome. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. and I'm so relieved that I haven't just kind of unraveled all of that good work by assuming that what I'm seeing isn't a state of hypnosis. Because actually, if they believe that that was enough to be able to make the changes or the improvements that they wanted to make, I'm happy for them to believe that because belief has such an important underpinning factor in hypnosis, I believe. Um, I really think that people need to know that it's worked for them and that doesn't need to be the same definition as what I would expect it to look like. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, I'm, I, I hear you on that. You know, I'm assuming that we understand what other people's experience is can be can be some sticky ground and, and and good job that we don't turn around and say to someone look just sit still will you <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit then um, um tell me about your 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 influences who are some of your major influences and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about some of the books and authors that have taught you the most um, um or the teachers that have been most influential upon you and and, and the reasons why um, I guess my biggest influence would have to be Milton Erickson. Um, yep. So I have a couple of uh, the books that were written about him um, and some that reflect upon some of the scripts and stories um, that he'd put together. And 
Although I wouldn't say that my own style is particularly Ericksonian, I think that there's a lot that he had to offer outside of a therapeutic environment or outside of a formal therapeutic environment. Um, Because I think that ability to be able to uh, tell stories and to be able to shift people's state in a very relaxed and and kind of covert way is incredibly powerful. Um, So I do uh, refer to his work a lot, um, both on the training, but also in the work that I do with clients as well. Um, I have also um, got a fondness for the work of Robert Diltz and some Mm. of the linguistic work that he's done um, in terms of uh, being able to, and I know that words are only a a fraction of our experience in our communication, but actually sometimes that fraction is quite important. Um, And just by perhaps changing some of our terminology or how we phrase things, um, we can really lighten some of the burdens and begin to shift our experience in a more positive way. Um, And so I use that stuff a lot with clients as well. Um, I do tend to cover some of the more cognitive-based things with them before I go into hypnosis. Mm. Um, And in part, I do that because I want to make sure that we've got the rapport there before I start asking them to do the slightly more unusual thing of closing their eyes in front of me and and laying back and relaxing. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I've always found that particular style and, and process to work really well. So, yeah, those I would say would be the top two on my list anyway. Um, I've obviously done the, you know, the bits with Richard Bandler um, and the other trainings that I've experienced as well. I have to say I've never become someone who is um, massively fond of rapid inductions, although I've seen them performed brilliantly by the likes of Bandler. Um, And I think the reason why that one doesn't quite join with me quite so well is because I do think about the work that I do as providing a a quite holistic therapeutic experience for people. Mm. Um, And it's probably my own stuff that gets in the way a little bit, but in some ways I think that, you know... I feel that I'm giving them more value if we go through something quite thoroughly and slowly and gently mm. rather than just making it quick and instant and uh, making it perceived to be slightly too easily done for them. Sure, sure. I, I think that's a really interesting point. I think a lot of people rather snootily overlook things like progressive relaxation um, um, within an induction because, heck, if someone if someone's coming to us with an anxiety disorder, um, I mean, it makes sense, uh, as far as I'm concerned, to use something that has relaxation in it, for example, and yes. um, is diligent and thorough. Um, um, really interesting. Thanks, um, Joe. So t- tell us then, um, I mean, you've been within these fields um, um, for, for a period of time. You know, throughout the time that you've been working with clients and you've been teaching and so on, tell us a little bit about some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed. Um, well, I suppose it, the main thing that's really um struck me throughout the period of time that I've been using this is that the more you do of it obviously the more confident you get but actually the better your results become so I know when I first started out something that I was really conscious of doing was um, I used to use scripts an awful lot in the early days and I still do from time to time depending on on you know what I'm actually working on um 
but I felt, you know, that I should really be relying on those scripts an awful lot. And I would very diligently, you know, choose the right script for the right issue and the right person, or I might be writing them out longhand in advance. And actually what's evolved over the last 10 years is that sometimes um, it might be the case that actually I know that script off the top of my head now, so I don't need to physically have it there in front of me. Mm. Um, and sometimes I just, you know, would have a wave of inspiration mid-session and, and throw something in there that I hadn't thought about beforehand. But the main thing that I've noticed is that actually a great deal of the time it doesn't matter what's in the script. As long as it's positive and ambiguous enough people apply it to themselves in their own way. Sure. So I remember um, I was working away from my office and I realized that I'd forgotten some of the scripts that I would have ordinarily relied upon and I only had two or three with me. And I saw maybe four people that day who all had completely different issues. And I decided that I was going to have to use the same scripts for all four of them, because I didn't have the other scripts available to me at the time. Mm. And what I said to them at the end of their session was, how was the session today? Did it sound like everything I mentioned there was a good fit for you? And every one of them said yes, even though it wasn't necessarily the script that was meant for them. And what I started to realize at that point in time was that, you know, over the years, you obviously become more confident in what you're doing. And so I think it's a combination of that confidence in your delivery, but also um, making sure that there is that degree of ambiguity in what you're saying, that people will always make what you say fit them. Mm. And that's made life an awful lot easier for me. Mm, mm, Interesting. Um, um. Now, one of the things I think, um, you know, whenever whenever we have a guest on, you know, it's it's my diligent, um, my diligence needs to include me going and doing some googling of our <laughs> guests, and so I think one of the things anybody that goes, you know, that's not familiar with your work and and goes and follows some of the links that we'll have up at the website, for example, I think would say, well, look, this looks and and appears to be a an accomplished businesswoman here um when you when you started out in this field um and when you started exploring hypnotherapy um and and knowing what you know now tell me is there anything you'd do differently and i purposely sort of framed that a little bit with this idea about business because as well as perhaps your own development in the hypnosis field and your own development um, as far as what you bring to the field, perhaps also on a business level. Um, um, and if so, if there is anything you do differently, is there any advice that you then extend to some of uh, our listeners and uh, uh, other hypnotherapists um, that, that would be of use to them? Yeah, um, I guess there's a few things that instantly jumped to mind. Um, I guess the key thing is that Having gone through all of my personal development training and my qualifications with hypnotherapy and NLP, um, I somewhat ignorantly thought that I would, you know, leave my training and set myself up as a practitioner um, and that all I was going to need would be a website and my GHR registration. Um, yeah. The clients would come, you know. Ta-da! People, <laughs> people will just fly into your lap from there. Funnily enough, it didn't work out that way. Um, no. And I think 
you know, we obviously deliver NLP and hypnotherapy training now, so I'm somewhat seeing it from the other side in that we have delegates that come on our training and say, I really want to do something with this and I want to set myself up and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I make a point of being very clear with them that actually having the skills to be a practitioner and having the skills to uh, promote yourself as a practitioner are two different toolkits. Yeah. Um, they're really different. And I know a lot of people from my training that I attended who were great practitioners who maybe didn't get to do the things that they should have done with their skills yeah. because they didn't have those business frameworks in place. Um, and equally, I know some of them that were really good on the business stuff, but maybe not so great at being practitioners who actually did go off and make some money from doing what they were doing because they were good at promoting themselves and, and yeah. shouting about it in the right way. So I guess my advice would be make sure that you definitely get some form of marketing training. Um, ideally, uh, have a mentor as well. I've always worked with a mentor. Um, um, since, well, since I got serious about the business side of it, certainly, I've always worked with a mentor. Um, and it's really been about focusing on that business element of, of what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and you need that accountability because typically as practitioners, we are working as lone rangers. So we can have a great idea and then discover six months later that it wasn't really that great an idea. But because we didn't have someone to bounce the idea off with, um, you know, we never got that uh, early insight into it that could have been that could have avoided us lots of time and, and costly mistakes so I think you know get some marketing advice ideally get a mentor um, and I think persistence is absolutely key because yeah. there's a lot of practitioners out there now there's more now than there was when I started it's um, a tougher fight to get to page one on Google these days um, and so you've got to have that kind of stickability and, and to really believe in what you're doing um, so that if you maybe spend the first 18 months, two years feeling like you're outputting but not getting an awful lot back, that actually you're still willing to persevere a bit because you're probably just on the cusp of the success at that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's some really valuable um, information in what you've just said there. There's the, 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 there's some, so much truth there and, and really useful stuff that I hope people take on board and listen to. And one of the things, um, I'm, I'm just to echo a point that you made, one of the things I find really frustrating is is just that when you encounter someone who's clearly very talented and exceptional therapist, but somehow doesn't make it work for themselves because of you know entrepreneurial naivety or something like that and then and then at the same time you know there are people that that, that perhaps are not as good but are well marketed there was a, there was a facebook meme once there's a little cartoon of cavemen where there was a caveman with with who'd invented a round wheel and he was stood there and there was and, and it was just just him and his pal and they were on their own and mm. and in the background there was um, um, a caveman who had a square wheel and there were just masses and masses and a throng of a crowd stood around <laughs> them um, um, and he was just and, and the guy with the with the round wheel was just saying you know guy needed I needed marketing advice yeah um, um, absolutely um, so um, Gemma tell me tell me what are your thoughts on evidence-based approaches to hypnosis um, I think that 
if you'd have asked me maybe, I don't know, seven years ago, um, I may well have shrugged that off a little bit. Um, it's something that in the last few years, and particularly as I've been, um, you know, weaving my work more towards the uh, kids-based stuff, it's mm. become apparent that it's much more important. So um, I used to, well, very early days, I always kept... Um, evidence of what had happened in the sessions based on my clients feedback I would evaluate their sessions after every session I would ask them to complete um, you know questionnaires and testimonials and so on um, and as we've moved the business forward and we've perhaps been working with some slightly more serious players the need for us to evidence our work has become um, well much greater yeah. um, rightly so However, I also appreciate it's a massive challenge. Um, and there was actually a workshop that I went on a couple of years ago, and it wasn't specifically talking about hypnotherapy, but it was talking about, um, you know, evidencing our work in general and how important it is that we get a clear distinction from the people that we're working with between how effective what we're doing really is and how good it makes them feel because actually those two things are different yeah. and sometimes we make people feel good and they skip off into the sunset because they feel lovely but actually we didn't get rid of the problem that we really should have got rid of for them does that make sense yeah absolutely I, I, a lot of feedback i get from people that have been on a lot of really big personal development seminars for example where dr alban it's my life has been played very loudly as they're leaving they're whooping <laughs> high-fiving chest bumping all their new friendly buddies as they go off um, um but then once the euphoria and the the reality of of their day-to-day -day life bites a little bit it's like well, well well what have i got what's equipping me for longer term change here yes. um, um and so so yeah i absolutely get what you're saying there yeah um Gemma, where can people go and learn more about you and your work and your, your approach? Um, it depends what they're interested in, really. So I've obviously mentioned NLP for Kids a couple of times there. Um, so that website is nlp4kids.org, so .org. Um, and then in respect of our hypnotherapy and NLP uh, training resources, the slightly more grown-up stuff, that one would be peoplebuilding.co.uk. Yeah, yeah. And um, there will be links to uh, both of those sites and a couple of other bits as well um, 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 on today's episode. We'll be back with Gemma Bailey in a short while. For now, thank you very much indeed, Gemma. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. We'll be back with Gemma shortly. Now, it's been a wee while since I dipped into the mailbag here at Hypnosis Weekly HQ, and the floor has letters strewn all over it, as I'm sure you can imagine. But I wanted to address some of the letters and messages that I received following last week's episode. Last week, we welcomed Terence Watts to the show as my guest. A couple of things he said caused me to receive a number of emails. Um... More than I've received for any other episode, and I thought I'd respond and explain a few things. Firstly, during last week's featured interview, Terence stated that one of his major influences was Sigmund Freud. Those who know me and my work will probably know that I'm not Freud's biggest fan. Um, Terence even mentioned that it was not likely to be a popular choice. 
And Terence then went on to say that one of the reasons he was influenced by Freud uh, so much was because Freud conducted such quality research into what he did therapeutically. Again, those who know me know that I have publicly questioned, you know, on my own personal blog and so on. I've personally questioned this before. Um, um, many of today's academics and scholars dispute that too and suggest that Freud's contribution has been little more than pseudoscientific at best. Um, Terence also suggested that there'd not been much or any real quality research conducted on the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy when I asked him about the evidence-based approaches to hypnotherapy, and yet my own book and others have championed numerous randomised controlled studies and trials and so on. As a result of, of this, um, I got numerous messages asking why I didn't take issue with these points during the interview. Now, here's the thing. This podcast is not about me affirming my own stance exclusively, okay? I state it every week that I want this podcast to embrace diversity and that I encourage a variety of opinions, stances, and so on. I love the debate. I love the variety of perspectives um, and, and the debate that ensues in other places as a result of, of what we discuss on the podcast. And I love making great friends with people who have differing opinions than me. Now, there is much strife in the world currently because people with opposing views are unable to find common ground or be tolerant and respectful of one another. We are adults. We are also adults in a modern, developed society. So therefore, we can all be friends. We can learn from one another. And heck, who'd want to come on my podcast in the future if I turned into Jeremy Paxman grilling our guests every week? These people are giving their time, they're sticking their heads above the parapet, and I thank them and have high respect for them. I hope that answers the numerous messages that I got this week. Um, now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Yay! Uh, this week I wanted to focus on some hypnosis and hypnotherapy stories that have found their way into the media. Um, 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 the first story this week is entitled How Hypnotherapy Helped Hendra. I love this story um, because of my own love of endurance sport and my own extensive research and written work on how hypnosis can help advance running performance. And those of you that are unaware, you know, go look for my book, Hypnosis for Running. It's brilliant. But Hendra Bezudenhut, um, my apologies for the pronunciation, Hendra. Hendra Bezudenhut, um, who represented South Africa in the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii, came 23rd in her age group. Uh, she was chuffed at just being able to finish in the extreme heat and wind of the 2012 uh, championships. However, a month later, she fell ill, experiencing internal tremors, uncontrollable jerking of limbs, eyes, and facial muscles. Her symptoms worsened with time. She was sleep deprived. She was very weak. Um, so weak, in fact, that she could hardly walk. She was admitted to hospital on numerous occasions for tests and scans, but doctors and specialists couldn't find any physiological explanation. A psychiatrist diagnosed anxiety disorder, saying Hendra was on the verge of a breakdown due to her nervous system being stuck in fight or flight mode. She was put on medication, saw a psychologist and tried to get through each day as best as she could, but her tremors and sleep deprivation increased her anxiety. Um, she's quoted as saying, I refused to accept that there was no cure. Over two years, medical practitioners and specialists had given different prognoses, which included in the extreme case, having to stay on medication for the rest of my life and that my nerve endings had been permanently damaged. A bleak outlook indeed. 
Then she read an article about hypnotherapy that was written by Andrea Kellerman, a Durban psychologist and hypnotherapist. The key message was that the therapy could be used to gain more control over the mind, to change unwanted behaviours and achieve goals. And Hendra says um, that the sessions targeted um, the chemical imbalance, the stress, the anxiety, and her brain started to change over time. And through positive reinforcement, she, she was making some, some, some progress. Um, and she's quoted as saying, I've been undergoing hypnotherapy since September. I'm learning to think and talk positively and not accept negativity into my life. Learning to elevate my thoughts, words and emotions from negative to positive, breaking a habit that almost destroyed my life. She adds, the best of it all is that it was possible by being trained to control my mind. So getting better as she has done was an endurance test of a whole new kind indeed. Um, really good to read that and we wish you the very best in your progress, Hendra. Um, our second story this week features a similar calibre of endurance sport. Yes, I'm referring to darts. Darts, yes. In an article featured in a variety of media outlets, including my very own local rag, the Bournemouth Daily Echo. The title of their article was Darts Champion Scott Mitchell Hypnosis Held the Key to Title Triumph. So yes, this is all about Scott Mitchell um, insisting that life-changing hypnotherapy sessions and recordings had guided his uh, uh, BDO World Championship final against Martin Adams in his favour. And uh, he's a local Dorset man um, here in the UK, a uh, 44-year-old man, held his nerve in a, in a final at uh, the very glamorous Lakeside to secure a 7-6 victory and a maiden world crown of darts, a £100,000 prize for him too. Um, I'm having failed to shine on the biggest stage for a number of years. Mitchell um, um, relented to calls for a different approach and he enlisted the help of Stephen McKibben um, of Assured Hypnotherapy in Belfast. And he told the Daily Echo that Stephen had in introduced himself um, at a tournament previously and said how a couple of players had been helped by him. Um, a couple of years later, his shirt sponsor, Sally from Designs by Saz, I love that. I love I love everything about darts, really. Anyway, um, she thought Sally from Designs by Saz thought that he needed a bit more mental impetus and that he should at least consider giving hypnotherapy a go. Um, um, and so he did. And, he's, and, he, and he says, I don't get as angry as I used to. I would get stressed over anything but Sharon my wife has noticed a change in that over the past year I now find ways to laugh at things that used to frustrate me it makes you a much nicer person and then people are nicer to you your whole persona feels better and that's good for your darts excellent to read um, congratulations Scott Mitchell attributing his recent world championship success to hypnosis um, um, in some form at least. Brilliant stuff. Now links to these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up we have this week's professional discussion then. 
Gemma Bailey, specialising in working with children, being founder of NLP for Kids. This interests me on a number of levels. Firstly, I have two very young children and I wonder about the usefulness and application of certain therapeutic skills that I have and how I'll, how I'll use them or share them, if, if I will at all, with, the, with my children as they get older. Um, my favourite psychologist on the planet, for example, Martin Seligman, um, wrote a book showing how his learned optimism process could be used with children to help them master their thoughts, their, um, and their emotions, and inoculate against uh, depression in later life or anxiety in later life. Um, and his approach is influenced by evidence-based procedures, in particular CBT and REBT. In the field of self-hypnosis, my own extensive PhD literature review demonstrated that paediatric applications of self-hypnosis had more evidence to support it than any other application of self-hypnosis, um, very almost, um, pain and immune functioning applications do tend to prevail. But I'm always fascinated personally and professionally in how to apply this and related subjects to children and how to make what we do accessible to children. As an aside though, I'm also interested in people that develop successful businesses in these fields and I'd expect you regular listeners to be interested in that too. So I wanted to hear a bit about that element of what Gemma does too. I think she shared some of that in the interview and there's a bit more here as well. I think there's plenty for you to learn about from her today. Here is this week's professional discussion with Gemma Bailey. So I'm back and joined again by Gemma Bailey. And um, Gemma runs a really successful successful aspect of her business, um, um, is working with children. And one of the things, and, and it's a subject matter that we've not really covered on an, on an edition of Hypnosis Weekly before, and something I was really keen to, to ask Gemma about. Um, Gemma, first up, for people that are not familiar um, with it at this point. Just tell us a little bit about the history. You know, how did NLP for Kids start? Um, um, how did you how did you get involved with 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 working with children and wanting to gear your work or an aspect of your business towards working with children? Um, so, as I mentioned, my background is nursery nursing. Yeah. So I already had a professional history in working with children. Um, when I went on to my NLP trainers training. I met with a, another trainer there who suggested very wisely that actually we shouldn't leave trainers training and just become NLP trainers because that's what the other 40 people in the room were planning on doing as well. And we were going to end up all in competition with each other. And what she suggested was that we did something that was going to be ever so slightly different to help us stand out from the crowd. Um, now, that lady's name was Kay Gill. She's still a great friend of mine uh, to this day. And we started out working with each other around creating a, a format for NLP that would work for children. So what that meant was going through all of the content that we had, seeing which particular techniques would work well for them, which ones we might need to adjust slightly, and which ones might not be relevant at all. And we created a syllabus for working with children. Um, Later on, uh, Kay actually got married and ended up having lots of children of her own. So she stepped outside of the business um, and is no longer part of NLP for Kids in a professional capacity, at least. Yeah. But I've obviously kept NLP for Kids going in that time. And in uh, 
I guess it would have been 2007, um, started looking at the idea of uh, potentially doing something a bit broader with NLP for kids because the feedback I was getting was, um, you know, we should have all learned this stuff in schools. Um, if only I'd accessed this 20 years ago. And so I decided to make it my mission that I would send NLP for kids out to as many children as I could possibly get access to. Mm. And quickly realized that doing that by myself was probably going to take me an extraordinarily um, huge amount of time. So uh, it made sense that I would start to involve other NLP practitioners in that journey with me. Yeah. Uh, so NLP for Kids is now licensed. So it works a little bit like a franchise organization um, in that we train people up in the skills that they need. Um, we run all of the various checks that we would have to do with them before sending them out to work with children. That includes things like their police checking, their insurance. They have to have um, uh first aid for children, they have to have child protection training, we collect references, they're interviewed, um, they have to complete a full application process. So it's, it's quite an intense um, jumping through hoops process yeah. before we're able to license them as NLP for kids practitioners and obviously the training is a big chunk of that too. Um, but what that means is that there are kind of multiples of me now throughout the country yeah are uh, delivering NLP for kids so that I don't have to worry about you know doing it for the whole world um, actually I can just concentrate on doing it in my own geographical region and they do the same likewise yeah 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 makes a lot of sense absolutely so what what actually is it um, 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 um what actually is it for people you, you know if you could if you could explain it to someone or someone is prospectively interested what actually is NLP for kids so we deliver one-to-one -one sessions to children, we deliver workshops in our local communities, and then we also work with schools. And in schools we might be doing workshops, we might be doing one-to-one -one sessions with children. There's an element of, as well of us working with parents and other organizations who are affiliated with children but who are perhaps not parents or teachers. So for example, YMCA, Action for Children, we've collaborated yeah. with those guys before. But essentially, it's either working directly with children or people who surround children um, to enable them to develop, uh, I guess you would call it emotional intelligence. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and what, what, what kind of age range are we talking here? I mean, we're when we're talking about kids, um, I, I'm guessing that they can't be so young that they, you know, that they need to better access their imagination, they need to better access their own cognitions and have a sense of self or something. What, what sort of age range are we talking about and do you typically work with? So um, for workshop based stuff, it's typically age seven years and upwards. Right, right. Um, one to one sessions, we can work with younger children, um, but in part it would depend upon the actual practitioner um, yes. and if they're comfortable working with very young children. I happen to be just because of my uh, previous qualifications that I already had. Yes. But some of our practitioners, you know, prefer to work with the older age band. We do have some slight different branding that we use for when we're working uh, with teenagers we've got a slightly more urban um, logo that we use for our NLP for teens um, yeah. and then we also have a student's logo as well so it's all pretty much the same content but we repackage it very slightly so that it remains appealing to the age of the audience that we're working with yeah yeah and I'm guessing you have to do your best not to use words like groovy 
or, 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 or cool when you're working with teenagers. Yeah, I get that. So, um, um, but typically then, I mean, do, do you address specific issues or, or is it is it that, that, that they perhaps bring issues um, or, or are the kinds of issues really irrelevant because you're equipping life skills in a preventative fashion? I, mean, I guess it's a little bit of all of those things. So typically for the one-to-one stuff, it tends to be more therapeutic based. Um, it tends to be that that child does have a very specific issue um, and that we're then working with them on a one-to-one um, using NLP processes and other things that are, you know, perhaps similar but not, you know, typically branded as NLP um, yeah. to help them overcome those uh, very specific challenges that they have. The workshop-based stuff tends to be, um, I guess, a bit more fluid in that it would be themed. So it might be something like confidence building. It might be dealing with exam stress. But we're not targeting it at any one particular individual. We're teaching them general skills. It's up to them then to take those skills and apply them into their daily lives in whatever shape or form they choose to do so. We have got some uh, plans on the horizon for a slightly longer term program. So a program that um, we've already got a term time program in school, but we're looking at something outside of school, a bit like an after school facility where it's a bit more along the lines of the um, life skills that you mentioned there. So there'll be some aspects of what already exists as NLP for kids, but there might be some new techniques, new activities that are useful for perhaps building things like citizenship or, um, you know, caring for others or empathy or some of those other really useful um, skills and emotions that are great for young people to access so that they can start to build those into their persona as early as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I love hearing things like this. Um, I'm, I... Um, I very often, um, on, on, on the occasions when I work with children one-to-one, um, you know, I, I think it's good to frame the skills as being, um, um, you know, something that, that, that's quite, quite different and unusual and skills that, that not, a, not a lot of their peers will have. Yeah. Um, do, the, do the children, you know, in your experience, tend to, tend to consider this um, and these skills in, in a particular way, do you think? Um, it depends on their age group, I suppose. Um, so with our younger ones, say the under 10s, um, you really can, you know, build some magic into it, which is yeah. quite good fun. Um, and, you know, because they have such great imaginations around that age, um, they do still have that kind of element of wonder and, and uh, magicalness in their lives. Yeah. We really build that in and incorporate it to make things quite special so there was a little girl that I worked with a couple of years back and um, she came to me with a challenge with uh, going to sleep by herself in the evenings and we just did a very simple anchoring process and then the other thing that I threw in there for good measure was I said um, what I want you to imagine when you lay down in your bed to go to sleep at night I want you to imagine that there's something really good that's protecting you and keeping you safe and I said some people might think of that like an angel or a fairy or you know just something that's going to be there and it's a 
good thing to watch over you. And she said, well, how about the blue fairy from Pinocchio? And I said, the blue fairy is an excellent example of someone good to watch over you. So you can imagine when you go to sleep at night that, you know, perhaps twinkling up there in the sky, there's the blue fairy and she's there looking over you and your house and your family to always keep you safe when you go to sleep at night time. And, uh, next time she came back to see me I said how's it been going with the blue fairy and she said well a funny thing happened because after a little while the blue fairy actually turned into you (laughs) (laughs) which was very sweet (laughs) yeah 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 no I I mean how how is um um, how do you how do you then make uh or how do you convert the NLP stuff that you that you you know, typically trained to do with adults. How, how did you make it child friendly? What did you do to it? How is it? How does it differ? Um, the key thing is the language, because NLP is full of clunky language, and I think it was just made that way to make ourselves feel a bit more clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, actually, most of the processes are very simple. We just need to articulate them in the right way. Um, and to be honest, very often now, I will use um, my kind of child-friendly version of explaining my NLP techniques with grown-ups as well as with children yeah. um, because it's much more easily digested and it's you know it sits on the ear a little bit easier um, the other thing that's important is that you have more than one way of explaining anything that you do so you know we know for example that everyone's got different sensory preferences and so we would take those into consideration when we're communicating with someone if we didn't know what their sensory preference was. Um, This kind of works in the same way that you need to have um, at least three different ways of explaining the one principle that you're working on that day to make sure that they've really got it. Because children can be somewhat misleading in that although we might know their age that doesn't necessarily relate to their stage of development. Yeah. And sometimes those two things can be quite different to each other. We can have very advanced seven-year-olds or we can have quite immature seven-year-olds. And so we need to make sure that we're always pitching at their level um, or stretching it slightly beyond that level if we had underestimated them or you know, explaining it in a slightly simpler way if we had underestimated them. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned um, you mentioned explaining certain certain things to parents. What sort of um, what sort of level of parental involvement is there? Um, it's quite case dependent. Typically, uh, most of the time, the interaction we have with parents involves um, letting them know at the end of a session what's been covered that day. If there's any tasking that the child needs to do in between sessions. Yeah so that the parent can make sure that essentially the homework gets done. Um, And then obviously getting feedback from parents at the start of the next session about what's been happening in between time, just so that we can make sure that we're getting, um, you know, the the whole perspective on things. Uh, Sometimes children will tell you what they think you want to hear and make the story sound a bit more rosy when actually that's not the reality. So you do need to check in with parents um, to make sure that that's not happening. Sometimes, however, though, the interaction with parents is a bit greater than that um, because for whatever reason, they may have um, a greater uh, influence on the root of the issue with that child. Um, Now, that's not to say that parents are intentionally causing problems for their children, but sometimes they might not be managing the situation in the best possible way. Um, They might be able to make some small adjustments to how they react in certain instances. 
And if we identify those things, then we have a responsibility to make sure that we share that with the parent, quite possibly out of earshot from the child. So in a conversation over the phone a bit later or even in a one-to-one session with them directly so that they are also then able to mirror what the good work is that's happening in the sessions when they get home. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, and so, they are are are, are they pretty much always present, or again, it'll depend. It um, depends. Mainly, I would say they are not in the room for the sessions, but they're somewhere close by. Yeah. Um, and the reason we tend to opt to keep them out of the sessions is because you see a very different child. Yeah. When parents are there, the children tend to rely on the parents to do all of the work and all of the talking. Or seek um, approval from them or something exactly. like that. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, they might, the child might even hold back from being completely honest because they're worried about the parent's reaction or hurting their feelings so we tend to see a much more honest child when we work with them on a one-to-one yeah yeah and and if the parent um is um privy to to some some of the information or or there is feedback given is there is there um um, is there a concern there that, that the confidentiality between therapist and child gets broken or I mean mean, is it okay not to inform the parents about some things or or how does that how does that work you need to be quite astute because it's so dependent on you know what the issue is so um as an example I had one child who um had downloaded an app on her telephone uh, called WhatsApp and she was getting messages coming in from people on social networking sites um some of whom were uh, too old really to be communicating with her Um, so she was around 14 years old and she was um, communicating with someone who was about 28 years old now she hadn't told her mum about this and she did tell me Um, she asked me not to tell her mum about it I asked her that you know she obviously delete the app and uh, and block this contact but because of the nature of um, the vulnerability of her situation I couldn't not tell her mum no, exactly she you know she could have been putting herself in great danger if she decided to meet with this person it could have been a really big problem and so I needed mum to be on board with that. Now, the thing is, is that sometimes, although you're doing the right thing by informing the parent, you can't control what happens next. So I spoke to the mum and I said, you know, it's really important that you are not um, angry or upset with her because, it, you know, it was really brave of her to share this with me. Actually, mum got very cross with her about it um, and, and for her naivety. Um, and so then it made the relationship between me and the girl a little bit strained because she felt that she had confided in me and that I'd betrayed her trust. Yeah. So we're always on this kind of, you know, um, uh, seesaw of balancing out and, and weighing up the consequences of our actions. And even though it meant that uh, it, it caused a, a fracture in our relationship, it still was the right thing to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, um, I, I mean, I, I find that very interesting because I think a lot of people, a lot of therapists perhaps think that something like rapport is exactly the same as having a professional working alliance. And um, I'm, I'm forever pointing out that the, that the distinction between the two is that rapport is more about getting along well and a working alliance is something that's respectful and still helps a therapy work, even if, you know, we're not sort of behaving like pals, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm guessing that, that 
you know, when you're working with the kind of volume of children that, that you do, that, um, you know, you, you can't always be getting along with all of them like your, like your good pals, and that sometimes there needs to be a very different kind of working alliance and respectful relationship that goes on instead of just seeking rapport. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, you have to rein them in a little bit because mm. uh, children get distracted quite easily and they'll go off topic and want to tell you about, you know, dinner at grandma's house or they'll find the colouring pencils and say that they just want to do colouring that day, yeah. uh, which may or may not be appropriate for, for what you had planned. And so sometimes you have to be quite strong and quite strict with them as well in order to help them move to the best possible result. Excellent, excellent. Um, um, Jim, I could just uh, I could just keep asking you stuff and talking about this um, until the cows come home. For people that want to learn more about this, the best place for them to go is nlpforkids.com. Is that right? Uh, so the uh, website, .org. It, yeah, the main website is nlpforkids.org, and that's a numerical for. Um, and then the other um, NLP for Kids related site. Uh, where you can download from there a free tips guide on how to build confidence in children. So it's all kind of based around the stuff we've been mentioning there. Um, that one would be nlpforkids.org, and you just add on .uk at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Gemma, it's been a real pleasure um, having you here on Hypnosis Weekly. Um, thank you very much. Maybe at some stage in the future we can get you back on again. That would be great. Thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some really useful information there. Um, a link to Gemma's personal website and the website of NLP for Kids is uh, there at the Hypnosis Weekly website. Now then, this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week is about Jean-Martin Charcot. Jean-Martin Charcot. Um, in 1862, Charcot was appointed chief physician to the Sapaltieri. Now, an immense 100-acre complex it was on the left bank of the Seine, comprising 45 run-down buildings, almost a town in its own right. It had streets, squares, gardens. Um, it housed about 5,000 destitute or insane, or senile, senile or uh, disturbed women um, um, who were jumbled together with no real attempt to classify their disorders. Um, and they were put in separate wards all over the place. This was a, a paradise for a budding neurologist such as Charcot. Um, but until he made it famous and added laboratories, a museum, um, research and teaching units, it was, um, it was considered to be a bit of an inferno that most doctors wanted to avoid. Within 20 years, as a result of his numerous publications and the eminence of many of his pupils, he had achieved international fame and founded the science of neurology. He identified multiple sclerosis, increased understanding of um, poliomyelitis, and had a neurological disorder named after him, so on and so forth. Impressive stuff, Charcot. Um, what's this got to do with us hypnosis professionals? Well, Charcot's friend, Charles Richet, the recipient of the 1913 Nobel Prize for Medicine, 
persuaded him to try hypnosis on his patients. Having forged a connection between hysteria and suggestibility, Charcot was inclined, um, and when he turned uh, and started looking at and considering the nature of hypnosis and working with, with some of these people. Charcot ended up concluding that hypnosis was an artificially induced modification of the nervous system, which could be achieved only in hysterical patients and which manifested itself in three distinct phases, um, which, which you, you, know, you can Google and find out about if you wanted to. And it was this sort of scientific talk above all, which gave him an aura of scientific credibility to the previous taboo subject of hypnotism. There you have it, um, 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 Charcot's interest uh, in hypnosis um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you will know about in his work. Um, a lot of what he did got uh, was refuted and disputed, and there were um, um, a number of um, 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 sort of up quite public arguments with what he went on to do. But an interesting fact there, um, simply about what what he said it was. Um, so in our next edition, next time round, Hypnosis Weekly, I'll be welcoming Mr. Bob Burns. Um, I interview him and we'll be examining his pioneering approach and the use of the swan in his therapy sessions. I have many more exciting guests that we'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in the future too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I'll make sure they're addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks go to Gemma Bailey. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.